1: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. All right. Well, um, I think we've got the recorder running. First of all, how do you pronounce this guy's first name? Is it Gustavus? Gustavus. i uh,
2: Gustavus. Is Gustavus. Gustavus Ferdinand von is what I've always gone with, and no one's um, no one's pulled me up on that.
3: It's a bloody fantastic name, isn't it? <laughs> it sure is. Kia ora. call William Rayaho. Welcome to Black Sheep Now I know there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who are already familiar with this name the famous mercenary adventurer Von temsky For those who don't, this song by Chris Priestley might give you a good mental picture at least for the legend of Von temsky With
0: a whistle round his neck To call his rangers long tall boots looking fine A colt revolver and a poem by his side A writer, guitarist Fabulous artist Kind of a renaissance man But brave von Tempsky died with a sword in his hand
3: It sounds too good to be true and to be honest
2: it is too good to be true He's been called for example just a bloodthirsty mercenary He came for the gold Stayed for the fighting. A glory hunter. Adventurer
0: Von Temsky by name.
2: And, and a terrorist. And the stories
0: they told. Exploits exciting. Brave Von Tempsky died with a sword in his hand.
3: Gustavus von Tempsky was a genuinely amazing man, but he had a dark side, and until relatively recently, that side was mostly ignored. Most of what you'll hear about him is the kind of stuff in that song, the heroic romantic von In the next couple of episodes of Black Sheep, we're going to look at both sides of that story. Vontemsky was born in 1828. He came from Prussia, a country which no longer exists. It used to sit on top of what's now Germany and Poland, plus a couple of extra bits and pieces of Eastern Europe. The Vontempskis were a military family, hereditary knights whose ancestors fought Genghis Khan's Mongols, and Gustavus was trained to be an officer from a young age. Here's Andrew Moffat, a writer and researcher at Pukiariki Museum in New Plymouth.
2: He was put through uh, junior cadet school, I understand, so um, basically being fitted out for a military career, um, along with a bit of classical education thrown in, his destiny was set pretty early in life, I guess. But he decided what just wasn't for him. He had the travel bug, certainly. <laughs> he headed off uh, out of Prussia um, when he was he was still pretty young. In fact, he was still a teenager,
3: When he turned 18 years old, Vontemsky joined up with a group of Prussians planning to set up a colony in another country which no longer exists, the Mosquito Kingdom. It stretched along the east coast of what's now Honduras and Nicaragua in Central America. The Mosquito Kingdom was a bit of a weird place. It was originally named after a local tribe of Indians called the Mosquito, that's M-I-S-K-I-T-O. But for some reason, someone decided to change the spelling, so it matched the blood-sucking insect. By the time von Vontempski arrived, the Mosquito Kingdom was a British protectorate, and there were a bunch of white colonists living there from Britain and Germany. Also, the whole country was a bit of a basket case. Its government was essentially bankrupt, its military was a complete disaster. In the words of one British official, The Mosquito Militia is so inefficient, even as a police
4: force, that it is best to regard it as non-existent.
2: But maybe it's the sort of place that... uh... Someone like von Tempsky, uh, can make the best of it, I think. um he sh- he showed that in, in different uh, places that he washed up that he was he didn't mind a bit of chaos, and uh, it seems like that was the his kind of natural environment.
3: Within a year, von Tempsky was employed as a personal tutor to the king. He got a commission as a lieutenant in the militia leading a force of Indian troops and border skirmishes against the Spanish. I don't know if that's impressive or if it just speaks to how generally dysfunctional the Mosquito Kingdom was. But then it all fell to pieces. The British stepped in to restructure the local government and fired all of the king's staff, including Vontinsky. That was a bit unfortunate because in the meantime he'd fallen deeply in love with a local British girl, Amelia Bell. The pair wanted to marry, but Amelia's father didn't think an unemployed teenage adventurer was a good match for his daughter – He wrote in his memoir that... Initially, I prevented the match for these
4: reasons. First, because he was too young then to judge such an important decision. Second, because I did not think it would be approved by his parents. And third, because he presented himself at Bluefields as a soldier of fortune, a profession I did not approve of. I advised him to travel.
3: Vontemsky takes Amelia's father's advice. He heads north planning to mine for gold in the Wild West. ski to Mexico, down to
0: Guatemala, on a great white stallion, what a sight was he. Then to California, on to Coromandel, chasing his fortune he'd never see.
3: Vontempski had all kinds of adventures trekking through Guatemala and Mexico to California, He skirmished with bandits, had tense standoffs with American Indians, explored Aztec ruins, gambled in saloons and lived rough in the mountains, prospecting for gold. And when he finally returned to the Mosquito Coast three years later, he wrote a book about his adventures. It's titled Mitla, After a Famous Ancient Ruin in Mexico. He had a real flair for writing, very intense and dramatic, Just to give you an idea, here's what he writes about seeing one of the Andes Mountains for the very first time.
1: Between an embosoming foreground of forest-clad mountains, their steepy sides, all feathery with dark green furs, a rose popocate petal, like a gathering reflector of the whole blaze of the sun. Around all the sharp cliffs that converge toward its stately head, there seem to play the lightning of sunbeams, dazzling to the sight. But between the radiation of these crystal cliffs lay softer lights, here melting into rosy depths, there having their edges of a glowing red. Like the sun's eye glaring through a storm cloud.
3: Vontemsky's writing is all like that, by the way. He was a pretty intense dude. Anyway, once he got back to the Mosquito Kingdom, Amelia's dad seemed to think he'd grown up a bit and gave his permission for the pair to marry. They went back to the UK for a while and then on to some more adventures on the goldfields of Melbourne. Started a family along the way too. Vontemski actually made a bid to lead an expedition trekking all the way across Australia. But he was turned down, which is probably lucky for him because when that expedition finally was launched, it failed spectacularly and seven men died. Instead, Vontemski headed for the goldfields of Coromandel. Just like always, he didn't have much luck on the goldfields, so while he was in Coromandel, he offered to write a column for a newspaper in Auckland all about mining life. That newspaper was one of the biggest of its time, the Daily Southern Cross.
2: And they said, hey, this guy can write a bit, and he took it from there, really. He he, um, showed a bit of flair and um, made the most of his chances, I guess.
3: But Vontemsky didn't just write about mining. He also talked about the really big news of the day. It's 1863 and tensions are growing between the British colonial government and Māori and Waikato. We've talked about this war in previous episodes of Black Sheep. If you're interested in hearing more about the forces behind it, then go back and listen to our episode on Thomas Russell. Vontimsky's articles in the Daily Southern Cross were thrilled about the prospect of war.
1: It had to come one day or another. Other countries are first conquered, then civilised. Here the reverse has been tried and failed. The greater number of us will not grudge the price asked. The cause of reclaiming a heaven-blessed country from the ill-directed guidance of savagedom is as noble a cause as a man may wish to fight for.
3: We'll come back to Vontemsky's attitudes towards Māori a little bit later on, but he wasn't just driven by a dream of reclaiming the country from savagedom. For Vontemsky, war meant money. We've already mentioned he wasn't having much luck mining for gold. At first, he tried to get money from the government to set up a local militia in Coromandel. When that was turned down, he offered to work as a war correspondent for the Daily Southern Cross. The newspaper agreed, and Vontemsky was embedded with a new elite unit in the British Army the Forest Rangers. Vontemsky went out on patrol with this elite unit, marching miles into the Honua Ranges through driving rain. But for Vontemsky, this was nothing new.
1: I had observed during the whole of this wet walk that Jackson and Hay were rather astonished that the paperman, myself, did not feel the damp as much as was to be expected from his calling. This rather amused me, this deceitfulness of appearances, for I had roughed it during eighteen years in most zones, whereas they were just commencing such experiences.'
3: Sitting around the campfire, Vontemsky told the Forest Rangers commanders all about his adventures in the Americas and in Australia, his military training in Prussia. He made such a good impression that they asked him to sign up. He was naturalised as a British citizen and given a commission as an ensign with the Rangers. It was literally better than he could have dreamed of. Not only had he become a true soldier of fortune like he'd dreamed of as a teenager, he was leading an elite unit with a vital role in the war. Here is Waikato War historian
5: Vincent O'Malley. They were specifically established as a crack unit, um, Mm. an elite unit, um, and they had something of a reputation for being quite ruthless in their work. A major focus uh, for the Crown Forces is um, securing the Great South Road, which is under constant threat of attack from Maori who are taking refuge in the Hunua Ranges and a lot of the road is heavily timbered and so very, very easy to to ambush. And there are even stories of parties of um, troops who are sent out to protect people who are are making sort of emergency repairs to the road being ambushed themselves. Hmm. Um, And so the forest ranges are kind of, their their first major focus is on that area in, in South Auckland along the Great South Road and securing that so that uh, supplies can be be sent further forward Mm. to the front. The idea of the forest rangers was to beat Māori at their
3: own game, fighting out in the bush at close range with ambushes and raids. And Vontemsky didn't give up on his writing. While he was still with the forest rangers, his diary entries were regularly printed in the Daily Southern Cross.
1: At one o'clock at night, September 21st, our armed throng arose silently and noiselessly. By two o'clock, you might have seen something resembling a monster serpent winding its dark way through the labyrinth of fern ridges, crawling around swamps and fern headlands, till the grey dawn of day saw the tail of it just disappearing in the forest cover. We had thus crossed this well-watched terrain unperceived.
3: Wontemski genuinely did know his stuff. He arranged for his men to be outfitted with hard-wearing comfortable clothes rather than the fancy uniforms of regular soldiers. He encouraged self-reliance and initiative. Famously, he insisted that the forest rangers arm themselves with giant bowie knives for close combat. That's the same kind of knife from the Crocodile Dundee movie.
2: That's that knife.
3: The Forest Rangers worshiped vontimsky. Here's what one veteran wrote in his memoir: "My pen
4: will fail to do justice to one who was every inch a soldier or gentleman. With regard to his physique, he had an imposing appearance, both as a soldier and as a man. His height about 5 foot ten, broad shoulders and built like an athlete. As a pedestrian on the line of march, he outrivaled us all. After a fatiguing journey lasting the best part of a day, he would order a halt, leave us somewhere snug in the charge of his subaltern, and then march off by himself, perhaps some 10 or 12 miles, and we would pick him up the next morning. He was a handsome man. His features embodied all that was noble and manly.
3: But this is where the story starts to get darker. We've talked a fair bit about the Waikato War in previous episodes of Black Sheep. It features a long list of atrocities and injustices for Māori and Waikato. And Vontemsky's forest rangers participated in some of the worst events of that war. Late February, 1864. The British troops were stuck, blocked from marching further south by a network of heavily fortified pa stretching from Te Aumutu to the Waipa River. Storming those pa would cost hundreds of lives. So instead, General Cameron sent out 1,200 troops, including Vontemsky's unit. Under the cover of darkness, these troops sneak through the bush around the Māori defences. And as dawn breaks, They reached the outskirts of a village,
5: Rangiafia. Unlike most of the battles in the Waikato War, Rangiafia wasn't a fighting part. It was just an open village. It it had no defences of its own. Um, And reinforcing that, it was a place of refuge for women, children, and elderly men. And that's been specifically sent there with a message that was sent to the Crown saying our women and children and old men are at Rangiawhia, please don't attack this place, with, with an assumption that the British would respect that. But Rangiawhia was too tempting a target.
3: It was a major agricultural hub. Taking it out would break the supply line to the Maori fortifications. As dawn broke, the
5: British launched their attack. <laughs> You can imagine the scene, the cavalry charging into this open village um, uh, uh, and, you know, people fleeing and running, screaming for their lives. It's a very chaotic and confused situation. Some Maori women and old
3: men picked up weapons and started shooting at the troops. The British responded furiously. In his own writing, Von Temsky made it clear they were out of control. One particularly nasty incident happened at a big house in the middle of town. A group of Māori were trapped inside, shooting at the troops through an open doorway. Timsky and his forest rangers rushed to the scene to help. One of his troops described what happened next. We put the muzzles of our carbines close to the Ropo
4: walls and fired through the thatch. The Māoris inside were doing the same, and naturally the inflammable walls would soon catch fire from the flash and the burning
3: wadding. By the way, not everyone agreed this air caught fire by accident. Vontinsky himself, along with three other witnesses, wrote it was burned on purpose. And Vincent O'Malley says that's
5: probably the more believable scenario. On the one hand, if you hadn't personally witnessed the torch being deliberately set ablaze, it might be a natural assumption to make Mm. that it was an accident. On the other hand, why would you, as Vontemsky did, incriminate your own side by fabricating the story that it was a deliberate act to torch these whare? And so I think that the, the vision that this was something that happened deliberately and it was a premeditated act is, um, is very credi- credible and stacks up completely. Either way, what happened next is the really horrific
3: bit. One old man walked out of the flames. A cloth was wrapped around his head to keep off the smoke. His hands were raised in surrender. Here's how Vontemsky described what happened next.
1: Spare him! Spare him! is shouted by all the officers and most of my men. But some ruffians, and some men blind by rage at the loss of comrades perhaps, fired at the Maori. The expression on that Maori's face... His attitude on receiving the first bullet is now as vivid before my mind's eye as when my heart first sickened over that sight. When the first shot struck him, he smiled, a sort of sad and disappointed smile. Then, bowing his head and staggering already, he wrapped his blanket over his face and, receiving his death bullets without a groan, dropped quietly to the ground.
3: Vontemsky says two other men tried to fight their way out of this whore. Both were gunned down. The next day, the bodies of seven Māori were found inside, including a young boy. Vontemsky's explanation is that this is just the normal kind of thing which happens in war. Mistakes are made, troops lose control, civilians get caught in the crossfire. But he ignores the wider context of Rangialfia, The fact that Māori leaders had told the British in advance that this village was a refuge for women, old people and children. He doesn't mention that the British had promised not to attack undefended civilians and that Māori had left Rangialfia undefended because they believed them. Māori leaders wouldn't make the same mistake again. The next time they met the British in battle – they made sure to keep their families close. And, unfortunately, that led to another slaughter, the Siege of Orako. You might also have heard it called Rewi's Last Stand. By late March 1864, Māori were on the retreat, but for a variety of reasons, they decided to make a stand at Orako Pa. 300 Māori, about a third of them women, was surrounded by 1,400 British troops, including Vontemsky and his forest rangers.
5: During the course of the three-day siege, Māori inside the pa very quickly run out of um, food, water and ammunition. And it's a crisis. So on the 2nd of April, 1864, um, the British um, sent a message into the pa to ask whether they are prepared to surrender. And, And they famously replied that they'll fight on forever, forever and ever. And a second message um, is sent into the par, asking if, if the men are going to fight on, whether the women and children will, will come out to safety. Um, and, and the response is that the women and children will die with their men. But Oraco was
3: wasn't 100% encircled. There was a small gap in the lines on the opposite side of the pā from the artillery, so shells which overshot the par would wouldn't hit British troops camped behind it. It was exactly the kind of opportunity the defenders were looking for. On the 2nd of April, 1864, they made a
5: break for it. It's quite a foggy day and the British are a bit unsure at first what's happening, but they see the people from the par leaving, not not running initially, but in a group huddled together with their most important figures um, in the centre of that group. And as the Māori get closer to the British lines, they, they start to run... And that's where the really horrific things happen. Von Timsky
3: ordered his troops to open fire on the Māori, then gave chase as they ran for their lives.
1: They began to drop under fire very fast. Our wind and stamina began to tell after the first three miles. Many a lagger was shot after having given us the last desperate shot of his barrel. For six miles we followed our prey. The last natives were three or four trotting along the top of a distant ridge. Signs of a declining day and a bugle sounding the return made us relinquish further pursuit.
3: So, Vontemsky plays up the heroism of this pursuit a lot in his writing. There's a lot about the athletic ability of his men, outrunning horses through gullies and swamps. But the next day, he reflects on the darker side.
1: As I wandered in the morning around the pile of dead Māori laid out near the Pa and another heavier pile further away on their line of flight, I began to realize the dreadful nature of the blow inflicted upon our opponent. Of three hundred men in the Pa, only one hundred had escaped, and even of those perhaps many were wounded. We had but few prisoners and all were badly wounded. The rest of the two hundred casualties were corpses. I was sorry to see both among the latter and the wounded prisoners, some women. The fearlessness and devotedness of the Māori women led them invariably to expose themselves in a way that where the bullets fly thick, it is almost impossible to avoid accidents.
3: But the killing wasn't all accidental. Vontemsky himself saw one soldier deliberately attacking a wounded woman.
1: A half-caste girl, shot already through the arm, was pursued by a ruffianly soldier who was upon the point of bayonetting her when one of the forest rangers saved her.
3: For the most part, Vontemsky gives us the same line he used at Rangiaufia. The killing of the civilians was all accidental. There might have been a couple of ruffianly soldiers on the British side who tried to attack the women, but Von and his forest rangers were there to step in and save the day.
5: Von Tempski is is careful to um, always describe his own actions in the best possible light. Um, The likelihood is that there were many um, women who were killed in cold blood at Araco and probably also Rangi Awe as well. That's certainly a strong part of the... um, the oral traditions, the oral histories um, of these conflicts. And this is a source of enormous anger and bitterness for Māori afterwards because the Crown had been telling Māori to fight in a, in a so-called civilised way, just like the British did, you know, don't bring your women and children into the fighting power and so on and, and and act like British officers and soldiers would, only to be met with what to them were these very savage and barbaric incidents. This causes enormous anger for, for Māori afterwards. They don't regard what happened at Arako or Musa Rangiafia as the normal course of events that would happen during war. They talk about this as being kohuru, murder. Not people killed during fighting, but, but people simply murdered.
3: Now I should stress there's no evidence that Vontemsky killed civilians himself or directly ordered them to be killed. It's totally possible he was always as chivalrous towards women and wounded as he makes out in his writings. On a couple of occasions, he actually says he deliberately freed women prisoners to make sure they weren't mistreated. But, as we mentioned a bit earlier on, Vontemsky had deeply racist views towards Māori, even by the standards of his time. One time, he wrote that Māori seemed not to notice the pain of bullet wounds, which he claimed was...
1: A sign of an inferior organisation, much too much like that of the less developed forms of animal life to be desirable in a race of men. He held Māori in
5: contempt. Mm. He's, he's very, very derogatory in his um, descriptions of Māori, and, and he talks about that, uh, the fact that Māori need to be taught a lesson, they need to be put in their place. He writes of Māori as if they're sort of childlike and you know, need to be disciplined... And it's his role to do that.
3: So we've sort of told you a story of two Vontemskys here. There's the darker side of Vontemsky, which Vincent O'Malley was just talking about. Then there's the more heroic romantic side, the side that's in these songs and stories. And in the next episode of Black Sheep, we're going to talk about how that image was created. Vontemsky is going to go from soldier to hero to martyr. And the New Zealand wars are about to go from bad to worse. That's all coming up in next week's episode of Black Sheep. He came for the goal and he stayed
0: for the fighting. Adventureable, Von Temsky by name. And the stories they told of exploits. Exciting, raced and rode all over this land. Brave von Tempsky died with a sword in his hand.
3: Very special thanks to Andrew Moffat and to Vincent O'Malley. For more on the Waikato War, I highly recommend Vincent's book, The Great War for New Zealand. For more Black Sheep, you can subscribe via your favourite podcasting app of choice. While you're at it, please remember to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends all about us so they can enjoy this podcast too. Also, RNZ has tons of other fantastic podcasts for you to enjoy. You can find them via the series and podcast page at rnz.co.nz. If you want more history stuff, then go and check out Eyewitness, which tells tales from history through the eyes of people who actually saw it happen. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. Our executive producer is Tim Watkin, and our sound engineer is Phil Benge. Our voice actor for Von Tempsky is the fabulous James Kane. We also had help from Duncan Smith, Giles Beckford, and Simon Dickinson.
1: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.